We are in Isaiah chapter 13 this evening. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Don't forget the uh, couple's dinner is coming up this Friday at 6.30. If you have not signed up, come see me because I left the list at home. Um, <laughs> and let me know. If money's a problem, don't let it be. Let me know. And if kids are a problem, well, it's too bad. No. <laughs> don't let that be either. We got some child care provided for that. So just let me know. That's uh, this Friday. And then um, one more thing I heard today, um, and I always get their last names wrong. I want to say Nakamichi, but that's not their last names. Remember the, the, the folks that were part of our church and the two boys that were geniuses and they, they moved to Israel. What's their names? Jack and Angie. What was their last name? Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, they moved to Israel to, uh, to, to basically evangelize, be a missionary. Uh, uh, she actually is, has some Jewish blood in her, so they were trying to actually get uh, uh, citizenship in, in uh, Israel there. And I just noticed today, posted on Facebook, that... Um, they found out that her grandfather was a Christian, and now they're being um, kicked out of Israel. And so, um, uh, just be praying for them. You know, God certainly can work and do something mighty in that situation, but um, just be praying for them. It's got to be tough for them because they, you know, they just left everything to go and do this, and and so that's uh, that's what's happening. So anyway, just pray for them and uh, uh, with that and that. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for um, this night tonight. We do pray for Jack and Angie. We just pray, Lord, that you would give them wisdom. Lord, we we know, Lord, that you uh, open doors and you shut doors. And we pray, Father, that, um, uh, Lord, that you would shut the door on this, that you would allow them to stay there in Israel, Lord, and minister to the people that are there, Lord God. We pray that you would work mightily and do a, a mighty thing in this situation, Lord God. But if that's not your will, Lord, we do pray that you just comfort them and give them a peace, Lord, and work out the details of them coming back to the States. And Father, we uh, thank you just for this night, Lord, this opportunity to be in your word, to uh, just hear, Lord, of, of some heavy things tonight, Lord God. And we thank you, Lord, that your spirit is here to teach us, Lord, but also to instruct us on in how to apply these truths to our lives, Lord. We're just not getting information, Lord, but we're getting application, Lord, as we... Look to your word. So we ask your blessing upon our night. We commit it to you. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the couple's dinner coming up as well. Lord, we want to remember that in our prayers. And for uh, Jason and his wife Mary as he, they come out and share with us. So again, bless our night, Lord, as we dig into your word. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We get into chapter 13, and really this is, you know, we might call it the burden against Babylon. And I've asked Jacob to put some of the verses up on the screen tonight. We don't usually do that on Wednesday night because we're going to be looking a lot of different verses. I'm going to hop around with. I want to be able to, to see that, us to be able to see that. See, Isaiah uh, here in chapter 13 begins a new topic. Chapters 13 to 23, we come again to this passage called the Book of Burdens, in which judgments are, are pronounced upon the nine nations surrounding Israel and Judah. And that'll be from chapter 13 all the way to, to 23. So uh, we, we may be going a little bit faster, maybe from 15 to 23, as we just go from nation to nation to nation as they cause the judgments of that. 
But he calls it burdens because Isaiah was announcing judgment that involved the destruction of cities and the slaughters of thousands of people. It's no wonder he felt this, this burden seeing what has happened. And verse 1 tells us this. Look at verse 1. That the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Now before we get too far into this chapter, I'd like to recommend that you take some time the next day or two and read six chapters out of the Bible. One sitting. And this will give you a, a kind of overview of what we're looking at tonight. Read Isaiah 13. Read Isaiah 14. Jeremiah 50 and 51. Revelation 17 and 18. And they'll give you a pretty big picture of the, the subject of Babylon, on the subject of its destruction uh, back then historically and future Babylon. Now, to understand chapter 13, I think we need to go back to the beginning a little bit of Babylon. Remember, Noah had three sons. He came with him on the ark, uh, his son Ham, Shem and Japheth. His son Ham was wicked. And it turns out that Ham's son Cush was even worse than, than Ham. And, and Cush's son Nimrod became then the first dictator on earth, according to Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. We read in Genesis 10:10 10, 10, that he built his kingdom in the land of Babylonia with the cities of Babylon, Erech, Akdad, and Kalne. So the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel in Shinar. Shinar would be the modern-day equivalency of Iraq. And even though man had already rebelled against God, it wasn't until Babel that man turned, started to turn to the false gods and, and to harlotry and abominations. In fact, the Tower of Babel was built because of that very thing. The people said in Genesis 11:4, "Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth." Instead of they're, they're, they're exalting themselves, let us do what we want to do. We don't want to be under God anymore. We don't want God to do what He's going to do. We want to do our own thing, and that's really where the worship of the planets began to come into play. The zodiac, the false gods began. Really the beginning of any false religious practice and, and, and system that deviated from God's word began there at Babel. The word Babel means gateway to a God. Fast forward to Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylon, and that's where we find Isaiah 13, a, a nation of false gods whose foundation goes back to the original Babylon. It's more than that, though. They, too, were in the false gods and the harlotry and abominations, but they were also responsible for taking Judah captive, and God was going to deal with Babylon for this. Now, as I mentioned already, Babylon itself is, is seen in several different ways throughout Scripture. It's primarily used for the real historical city located in the Euphrates River there in Iraq. But we also see it's used in Revelation 17 and 18, speaking of the last days as a both commercial and religious system that's false. It's, it's, it's abominable. We know it's in the last days. Now, I believe that chapter 13 really applies to all three. We see the historical, the commercial, and the religious system. And remember that many of the prophecies, prophecies of Isaiah, there was was called the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. And so here in chapter 13, we're going to go back and forth with that. So we need to pay close attention to where we are at. Because you're going, okay, this is that and this is that. I was telling my wife earlier today, how come the Lord just didn't say, Okay, this was Babylon back then. Now, this is going to go 2,000 years later to Babylon. And this is what's going to, you know, but, but he doesn't do that. He, you know, would have been easier for us. But, but this is the way the Lord has it for us. So, uh, chapter 13 jumps back and forth. We have to pay close attention to where we're at. Now, we also know that the nation of Babylon plays a major part in prophetic scripture. 
In other words, Babylon speaks of the kingdom of this world, the false system set up by the God of this world, Satan himself, who we will look at in chapter 14 next week. Revelation 17, verses 1 and 2 points out, In the last days Babylon is the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth are made drunk with the wine of her immorality. It goes on to say that, that the woman sits on seven mountains, which most Bible teachers believe is the city of Rome. But that's not the end of the story. See, we know the Antichrist is going to establish himself as the only lawful religion, and Babylon will make this, this transition from this religion to commercial in fact, that's prophesied in Zechariah 5, verse 9 through 11. Look at that. Zechariah 9, 5, 5 verses 9 through 11 says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, To build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. So the harlot is being relocated to the land of Shinar, Iraq, we see there in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 that during that seven-year tribulation, that's where uh, all the fall of the religious Babylon will happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, religious Babylon symbolizes all the false religions of the world, and then we also will see the fall of commercial Babylon, which symbolizes all the corruption of businesses and commerce throughout the world. Again, I reference back to Revelation 17 and 18, Jeremiah 50, 51, to get a bigger picture of what's going on. All that to say again, as we look at chapter 13, we're going to go back and forth to the immediate fulfillment and the future fulfillment in Isaiah 13. So starting in verse 2, we read the Lord announces that he's preparing an army to execute his judgment on the literal city of Babylon. Look at verse 2 through 4. Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand and, let, and they may enter the gates of the nobles. I've commanded my sanctified ones. I've also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation, the noise of a multitude in the mountains like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. Now we know that God has used ungodly nations before to unwittingly, unwittingly accomplish his plans. God is sovereign. He, you know, is able to call an army. He desires to accomplish any task he assigns. And he can summon them however he wants to. And here it's with a banner on the high mountain. And in this case, we will see that God is calling the army of the Medes to come against Babylon. In fact, if you drop down to verse 17, he says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Now what is interesting there is that at the time this was written, the Babylonians were not the world's superpower. The Assyrians were. Babylon was, was way second during that time. They, they were nowhere near as strong as the Assyrians. And, in fact, the Medes, they posed no threat at all. It'd be like, you know, a prophecy reading, uh, you know, that uh, Hawaii is going to conquer China. You know, or something like that. You're going, what? how could that be? No one would believe it. But that's what makes God's word so amazing. Only God can speak of the future with absolute certainty. It's not as though God is coming out on a limb or going out on a limb and taking a chance. God lives in the realm of eternity and he can see the future as clearly as we see the past. Actually, probably more clearly because we forget our past and we don't remember. So, you know, we start. But, but uh, listen to Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10 in the New Living Translation. The Lord says, Remember the things I've done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass for what I do for I do whatever I wish. Now we know by looking back 
that the city of Babylon was completely destroyed in 689 B.C. by Sennacherib and the Assyrian army, but it was rebuilt by Sennacherib's son. Then in 539 B.C., Darius the Mede then captured the city and then fulfilled Isaiah's words here. But it's clear that Isaiah's prophecy describing something more significant than the ups and downs of this ancient city. Again, the language here in Isaiah also shows us that this could be a near and far fulfillment. Look at verse 5. It says, They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, the Lord and His weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. And again, this spoke of the surprise invasion of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. But looking ahead, now look at verse 6. It says, Well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Now suddenly, we've been zoomed into light speed in our 1985 DeLorean, Back to the Future. We read, the day of the Lord is at hand. Well, when is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is the events leading to and the day when Jesus Christ comes back. See, what we realize is that though he's prophesying of Babylon being destroyed, he now takes us to the future, into the time period you and I know was the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble. A time after the church is removed via the rapture of the church to the time of God's wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And we read at that time there's going to be some wailing going on. The word well there means to howl in distress. Why? Because destruction is coming. From who? Well, it says from the Almighty. That's why they're welling. I mean, the, the day of the Lord, the destruction that will come on the earth is the day of God's wrath. It's from the Almighty Himself. This is a future event, though I believe it's coming very, very soon. And then he says in verse 7, Therefore all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt. When God's wrath begins to come upon the earth, there's going to be these non-believers, oh, I, I could take it, so what, I'll hunker down, you know, I'm a prepper, and he's a prepper, and we're a prepper, and wouldn't you like to be a prepper too, you know? I, I mean, they can all get caught up in their, in their, 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 you know, their preparations, and they go, I can bunker down, and I can make it through. I've got a generator and, and can take anything God throws at us. Really, you think so? The Bible says 100 pound hells of ice will come from the sky. How are you going to handle that with your generator? Yeah, I, I don't know. See, after the church is raptured out, taken up out of here to heaven, the last place you're going to want to be is left outside when the rain begins. You don't want to be around during the great tribulation period. Period. At all. I mean, imagine the fear that they begin to see the wrath of God. Verse 7, all hands will be limp and every man's hearts will melt. How many men's hands will go weak or limp? All hands. How many hearts will melt? Every man's. doesn't matter if you're the most powerful, strongest, well-prepared. You're going to be weak. You're going to collapse under this. Under this extreme distress, wailing. Jesus put it this way in Luke 21, verse 25 and 26. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth's distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of the things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There's going to be no place to hide. This whole universe is going to start unraveling by the scenes. It's going to be a mess. Men's hearts are going to fail them because of fear. No way out of the situation. No way to get away from a righteous God who said, That's it. I'm done. I've taken all that I can. Judgment must come. That's what's coming. That's what God is talking about in Isaiah 13. After he destroys the literal Babylon, he comes up to the great tribulation period and says that the destruction will be from the Almighty himself. Look now at verse 8. Then he says, And they will be afraid. 
Pangs and sorrows will hold, will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Doesn't that sound familiar to us? It should. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 24, verse 7 and 8. Nations will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. There will be pain as a woman in childbirth. Definitely speaking of God's wrath and vengeance. Isaiah goes on, look at verse 9. Behold, the day the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Again, the speaking of God's judgment is being poured out during the Great Tribulation period. He says the sun will be darkened, the moon will not cause its light to shine, the stars will not give out its light. See, that should also turn on the light in our heads when we think about what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with with power and great glory. In other words, God is going to shake up the world. It's going to almost unravel before the eyes of the people here, and then the Messiah will come at His second coming with power and great glory to set up His kingdom. And you know what happens next. We know what happens next, but I'll, I'll show you. Zechariah 14, 4. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. Zechariah 14.4 As Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives, the upheaval that, that is going to happen literally splits it in half. It's going to be a brand new valley. It's going to be probably, looks like, for probably a few hundred miles. Just a whole lot of shaking going on. Keep your place in Isaiah. I want you to turn over me to, to the book of Hebrews. I didn't want to put this one on the screen. I want them to look this one up ourselves. Hebrews chapter 12. Starting in verse 25. He says in verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. So we're told that God is speaking to us through his son Jesus Christ, and we ought to listen to what he has to say. He goes on in verse 26, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. So you're going to see the, the earth as well as the stars will all be shook. Then verse 27, now this, yet once more indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for God is the consuming fire. So God is telling us that he's going to shake the earth one more time. He's going to shake heaven as well. Basically, it's coming. That's what we're reading about. And because of that knowledge, there in Hebrews, the writer says, we need to have so much grace that we may serve God in such a way that's always pleasing to him and godly 
fear. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire, it says. He will come to judge. See, that's the purpose of the great tribulation period. Not only to deal with Israel, who has rejected the Messiah, but to judge a world that has cursed the cause of Christ and His kingdom. Now turn back with me to chapter 11, um, chapter 13 of Isaiah. Verse 13. Again, it's been almost 3,000 years ago that Isaiah is writing this. And the Lord says there in verse 13, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place, in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. It shall be as a hunted gazelle, and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people, and everyone will flee to his own land. Everyone who is found will be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished or raped. I mean, he's telling us of a worldwide destruction. And I hope again that you notice that he says it's coming upon all men, all women, all children. No flesh would survive except for God's mercy. He says the whole world, therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth, will move out of her place. Uh, the earth presently is out of her place. We know it's, it's tilted on its axis. That means there's a great possibility at one time that the earth stood straight on its axis. Kent Hovind has a, has a very interesting theory about this, that something cataclysmic, something big happened, perhaps the result of Lucifer being cast out of heaven or some speculated as this great meteor hitting the earth at the time of the flood, causing the collapse of the water canopy that was over the earth, causing the flood and tilting the earth to its present position. That certainly would explain uh, the evidence of vegetation under the polar ice caps. But it's very possible that in the time of the shaking of the Great Tribulation that the earth will be set back straight. And it would cause, again, the polar caps to melt and the world to become uniformly tropical once again. And it could make the earth as it was before the flood, which we looked at last week when Isaiah described what the world would be like during the millennial reign of Christ. So just a, a speculation there. Well, we go on in verse 14 and we see that during this great time of Great Tribulation, verse 14 says, It shall be hunted... It shall be as as the hunted gazelle and as the sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. Again, there's going to be no place to hide. You know, Jesus, again, talking about this time in Isaiah, said this in Mark chapter 13, verse 19 and 20. He said, For in those days there will be tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be, and unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. God is, is going to be merciful, because if he poured out his wrath and didn't hold back, everything would be gone. Destroyed, no, all flesh would be destroyed. But it's an interesting thought that God is going to stop just in time before all flesh is completely annihilated. My point is, it's going to be an ugly time. In fact, Jesus even questioned at his return. It's a rhetorical question, more of a statement when he said, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? I think the answer would be, be no. I mean, think about that. When Jesus Christ returns, will there be no true Christian faith? I mean, that's how ugly it's going to be. That's why I believe that Jesus promised. He promised to take us who are of him out of this world away from that scene. 
Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Paul put it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the scene is going to be so devastating. I don't think Christians today realize how devastating the, the Great Tribulation is actually going to be. I think if we got an actual glimpse of our neighborhood, of our community, of our friends that aren't believers, our family that aren't believers, in their homes, in the destruction, and the devastation that is promised to come, I think it would change us radically. That's why God is saying in Isaiah 13, this is what I'm going to do. It's a warning. Don't be left behind. Give your life to Jesus Christ today, because if you don't, it's going to be a horrible time. The wrath of God will be poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. And again, it's going to include men, women, and children. It's going to be over the whole earth. It's going to be destructive because all of evil has permeated the earth. Our responsibility, our privilege really is to let everyone know that they can come to to the ark, so to speak. They can come to Jesus Christ to be saved. They'd be safe in Jesus. There's no hope in this life. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. No other religion, no other doctrine, no other plans, no, no other preparations. Being a prepper is going to help. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the only begotten Son of God, is the only one that can help. And it's so important that we, we know this and we tell others this. We've got to get the gospel to them. They're not going to come to us. It's our responsibility. Again, if we really get the idea of how ugly this world is going to be when we're out of here, when we look and understand the type of judgment that is coming to this earth, and if we understand that hell is forever, then that should cause us to have such a burden for the lost that nothing else should matter but letting them know about Jesus Christ. Trouble is coming. Well, now back to Isaiah 13. We come to verse 17. Now, we're no longer talking about the day of the Lord. We're now back in Isaiah's day, and we're talking once again about the Medes coming to destroy Babylon. Look at verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also, their bowls will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. Now he's going back to Babylon again. And notice how we really have to pay attention when you're reading this, because he does. He takes us from the day of the Lord and the destruction and the great tribulation back to Babylon, and he finishes off with Babylon. Look at verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldean pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, we're back talking about Babylon and the original city itself. And prophecy has been fulfilled. Babylon was the greatest kingdom that ever existed upon the earth. The Macedonian Empire was great. The Egyptian Empire was great, as well as the Roman Empire. But I don't think anything could compare to the glory of Babylon. God's words calls it the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride. I found a picture, an artist's rendition of what was known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven worlds of the ancient world. It was beautiful. It depicts fabled hanging gardens and the Tower of Babel in the background. And you can just imagine in your mind how beautiful it was. And some stories indicate that the hanging gardens towered hundreds of feet into the air. The ancient city of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar II must have been absolutely amazing. In addition to its size, wrote Herodotus, a Greek historian in 450 B.C., says, Babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. Uh, Herodotus claimed that the outer outer walls were 56 miles in length 80 feet thick and 320 feet high, wide enough, he said, to allow two four horse chariots to pass each other. I don't think Trump's going to build a wall that big between us and Mexico. I mean, this thing was huge. 
He said that these double walls were fortresses and temples containing immense statues of solid gold. Rising above the city was a famous Tower of Babel, a temple to the god Marduk that seemed to reach to the heavens. God says, here's what would happen. Verse 19, In Babel and the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldean's pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because as beautiful as it was, it was evil. Verse 20, Isaiah says, It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. Now all you have to do is look at ancient Babylon, the ruins there, and recognize that that exactly is what happened. It was a great city that was never rebuilt. Other great cities have been rebuilt, especially true of Jerusalem. Rome was destroyed and rebuilt. Cities in Germany were bombed out, obliterated. They were rebuilt. Frankfurt, Germany was leveled. It arose out of the ashes, a great city but not Babylon. Why? Because of their sin and idolatry, Babylon did not rise. God said it would never again be inhabited. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. He said it hasn't been rebuilt. Didn't Saddam Hussein start rebuilding it? Actually, number one, he never finished it. But number two, the original site that Saddam Hussein started building is actually was nine miles away from the original site. See, it's never going to be rebuilt there again on that spot. God said so. Now, what is interesting that we read here that the Arabian will not pitch his tent in that place, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. We know that archaeologists have hired Arabians to do digs in that area, and during the day they'll work and they'll dig and they'll dig and they'll dig, but at night they'll go out, out of the city and they'll pitch their tents somewhere else. They won't sleep near the dig because they're superstitious, and they say that there are demons there, there's ugliness there, and they won't, as God's word says, here, pitch their tents there. Now, we'll look at more of this next, next week in chapter 14. But he says, all that's left are wild animals. Look at verse 21. But wild beasts of the deserts will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in, in their citadels, and the jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. Remember, this is the city where it all started as man was seeking others' gods and rebelled against the true God and God had had to confound their language to spread them out, so to speak. God said in Genesis eleven six, and the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one and they have all one language and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Guess what? We all have one language now, don't we? It's a computer language. There's nothing we can't imagine that we can't do. There's nothing that we can't do once we get our minds together because our minds are evil. We know where this is heading. We know where this is heading. The world is in trouble. God is coming back and He said so. You know, we will see Babylon destroyed again in the book of Revelation, the commercial system, the religious system. It will be destroyed. God has given us His word on it. We know the future Babylon will become a great center on earth. A man of sin, the willful king called the, 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 the Antichrist will reign in that place and he'll be destroyed just as the ancient Babylon was destroyed. See, Babylon is a memorial to the fact that the accuracy fulfilled prophecy and a testimony to the fact that God keeps his word. God says what he means and means what he says. God is going to do this. Now, God doesn't say this to scare us. You know, he, he, when he says these things, he wants us to know number one that they're true. But knowing that they're true, Peter puts it this way in Second Peter 3.11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Knowing these things are going to happen, we should, number one, walk as closely to the Lord as we possibly can. 
relying on his strength and his power. Be in God's word. Be in prayer. Be seeking him. Number two, we should be willing to reach out to those who don't know the Lord. However, God shall allow that, whatever opportunity we get. And number three, as Peter says, we should be walking in holiness and godliness. Keeping ourselves pure. Keeping ourselves away from from those things that would draw us away from Christ. Next week, chapter 14, we're back with Israel, the millennial reign of Christ. But also chapter 14 gives us a glimpse of the Antichrist and the power behind the Antichrist. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, we see the downfall of Lucifer himself and scriptures about that. It'll be very interesting. That'll be next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night tonight, Lord. We thank you for your great love towards us. Well, I want to thank you, Lord, for opening up our eyes to see, Lord, first of all, to show us that we're sinners, but also to show us our need for a Savior. Lord, as you did that work in our hearts, Lord, you saved us from this time that's going to come upon this earth. Lord, you saved us from our sins. You saved us from a life of disobedience, Lord. We thank you for that. And now knowing these things, Lord God, I pray that you would cause us to walk in holiness, to walk in godliness. Lord, cause us to redeem the time knowing that your return is near. Lord, help us to even take a bolder step of faith at our work, at our schools, Lord, in our families, to let them know how much you love them, that they might turn from their sin and turn towards you, Lord God, and escape this time that's coming upon this earth. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in heaven, the hope that you give to us, Lord, that as bad as this earth gets, Lord, that's as bad as it's ever going to get for us from here on in. It's going to be great in heaven. But for those that don't know you, Lord, it's going to just get worse and worse. Again, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for this night tonight, Lord. We give you all the praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.